Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Once again, this week, we're running someone else's podcast where I was a guest. I know that this is now two weeks in a row that we're doing this, but I think folks will really enjoy this particular discussion. Uh, this podcast is the Short Circuit Podcast, which is put out by the Institute for Justice and hosted by Anthony Sanders. Uh, that podcast regularly has fascinating, detailed discussions on various legal rulings and happen to have two cases that involve technology. So they asked me to, to uh, be on the podcast to discuss them. There are actually two cases that we've written about on TechDirt, one involving Section 230 and another involving drone surveillance. Uh, as you'll hear in the discussion, Sanders hosts the podcast, and I was there mainly to talk about an interesting Section 230 case uh, regarding Vimeo. And then another Institute Justice uh, Institute for Justice lawyer, Josh Windham, was mainly discussing a ruling about drone surveillance over someone's property in Michigan. But we all sort of uh, discussed both cases and, and talked about it back and forth. Uh, both, both of the cases are super interesting. And I think folks will really enjoy the discussion. So thanks to Anthony and the Institute for Justice for having me on and also for allowing me to share the podcast on our feed. Uh, we'll be back next week with uh, a regular podcast. And we have some really fun interviews lined up over the next several weeks. So uh, for now, uh, enjoy the Short Circuit podcast. The world is increasingly technological. So we have better get methodical. Bring in precision to critical digital journalism with this hello and welcome to short circuit your podcast on the federal courts of appeals i'm your host anthony sanders director of the center for judicial engagement at the Institute for Justice. We're recording this on March 25th, 2021, and there's still plenty of time to register for our online event on Tuesday, April 20th, where we and several experts and civil rights lawyers will celebrate the 150th anniversary of the adoption of Section 1983, one of the most important civil rights laws in our history. To join us, use the link in the show notes or go to ij.org cje and click on the icon that says outrage legislation. So I am the last person who can claim to have an informed opinion on technology, as my family often reminds me. But two very interesting cases came out the last couple of weeks that are all about the hottest and newest controversies on how technology, the law, and the Constitution intersect with each other. Thus, I needed some help. So we have on today two experts to help you, but especially me, get just a little bit more high tech. First of all, we are thrilled that a special guest is joining us. Mike Masnick is someone that many of you, to many of you needs no introduction. He is the founder and editor of TechDirt, as well as the founder of the Copia Institute and writes on many technology and civil liberties issues and in other areas as well. He also is one of the few people who manages to stay sane while discussing what we'll be talking about today, Section 230. Mike, welcome to Short Circuit. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm always always happy to talk about 230. Great. Well, we're, we're going to 230 away in, in, in a moment. Also joining us, though, is the ever-popular IJ attorney, Josh Windham 
who we have on from time to time to talk about various issues, including state constitutions and zoning. And today, an intersection of all that, while throwing in the D word, drones. Josh, thanks for coming on again. Happy to be here. So I asked Mike to join us because of a recent case from the Second Circuit, Doman versus Vimeo. Yes, that Vimeo, the one you upload videos to. We're going to hear from him about the case, which involved uh, Section 230, and among other things, but more broadly about what's true and what's not about that statute and how it applies to our lives. Mike, first, let's hear about what Section 230 has to do with Vimeo's dispute with its former customer. Uh, sure. So, you know, the the basics of Section 230 is that it it gives uh, any website the ability to moderate content without facing liability for the choices that they make or for the content that a, u- a user posts. Um, and in this particular case, uh, it involved uh, the the plaintiff, uh, James Doman, uh, and his organization, which is called Church United, I guess. Uh, and uh, Doman describes himself as a as an ex-gay individual uh, and posted videos uh, about that topic. Uh, and Vimeo found that uh, that violated its policies, that it had a policy against the promotion of sexual orientation change efforts. S-O-C-E is the way it described it. Uh, and told Mr. Doman that those videos that he was posting violated its policies and that he needed to take them down or they would shut down his account. Uh, And he ignored them. Uh, And so they did exactly what they said and they shut down his account and he sued, uh, arguing a whole bunch of things, civil rights violations and and other things. Um, And this, you know, at first pass seems like a pretty typical Section 230 kind of case. Section 230 very broadly protects any website from the moderation choices that they make, both the content that they leave up and the content that they take down. Uh, And contrary to what some people think, uh, there aren't a whole bunch of conditions on that. It's it's pretty broad and it's pretty much a a very clear immunity. Uh, It does not involve having to be neutral. It does not involve some difference between being a platform or a publisher. It applies to any website that is hosting third-party content. So that is content that they did not create themselves. Um, So... You know, at to some level, this case seems fairly straightforward and and a a rather typical Section two thirty style case. But actually, the appeals court ruling is is a little different and in, in an interesting way. Um, a lot of people get very confused about. Uh, Section 230, not just because of the sort of false descriptions of it, (laughs) um, but even people who read it get confused. The the important part of Section 230 is Section C. That's the only thing that really matters in Section 230. Um, And C is divided into two sections itself, A and B, or uh, sorry, one and two. Um, And one is the part that is that is most famous. Uh, that is the part that says that no website is responsible for, uh, is, should not be held as a publisher of third-party content. Um, and then section two, section C2, uh, is the part that says that they can remove all sorts of, uh, of content uh, including, it ha- there's a list, but then it also says, or otherwise objectionable, uh, 
but also says if the removal is done in good faith. Um, and a lot of people have really seized on two things. One, the, the otherwise objectionable framing, and then secondly, the, the good faith term. And so lots of people have argued that various takedowns uh, were not done in good faith and therefore not protected by 230. Most courts have said that doesn't matter. Uh, and really what they've done is said that section C1 that simply says no website should be liable for any third-party content covers all moderation decisions leave up or stay down because if they decided to punish uh, a website for taking down content, that would be holding them liable for third-party content. Um, it feels a little strange, but lots of courts have ruled this way, and therefore the C2 part of Section 230 almost never comes up, and that's the only part that mention that has the good faith requirement. So it's very rare that good faith has been litigated. There's a separate argument, which actually doesn't come up in this case, that even determining whether or not the moderation is good faith has First Amendment uh, issues, because you would have a court basically saying, do we agree with this editorial decision or not? And from a First Amendment standpoint, that gets very iffy very, very quickly, because you don't want court saying, was this editorial choice in, in good faith or, or not? Um, but so what's interesting here is that the court does this entire, the appeals court does this entire ruling based on C2, rather than C1, uh, which is different than almost every other court ruling around 230. Um, it's not entirely clear why they did this, because the, the lower court decision that they're reviewing uh, ruled on both C1 and C2 and said, you know, you could dismiss this case on C1 grounds like every other moderation decision. But this ruling in the appeals court focused entirely on C2 and and mostly on the question of good faith, and then gave a very broad ruling that said, similar to the way that, that courts have interpreted C1, um, that C2 is also a very broad immunity, and it gives Vimeo uh, very you know, uh, open-ended powers to moderate their own site the way that they want to. Uh, and that the good faith uh, limit on it um, requires a lot more than just saying, I thought this was unfair. <laughs> you know, I, I don't like this. Uh, or, you know, the other arguments that, that Mr. Doman made, uh, including he pointed out other content that was left up on Vimeo that he felt um, show that he was treated unfairly. He, you know, within the within his complaint, he argued, and 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 uh, throughout the case, he argued that, um, you know, Vimeo was was treating him differently than others, and pointed to examples of of content that they didn't take down. And the court very clearly said that even under C two and the good faith standard, uh, just because you find other content, that does not establish that it was done in in bad faith. Um, it also noted that you know the policy here was clear, and that the company ex you know explained the policy to Mr. Doman, and they warned him that he was going to lose his account, and there is just therefore no evidence that anything was done in bad faith, uh, and therefore said that you know uh, Vimeo's. Uh, decision here was was completely protected by 230, and the case could be dismissed on 230 grounds, including C2, um, which is which is is rare. I mean, it's it's a rare sort of 230 C2 case. 
And so could the court have just got done what most other courts have done and just gone with C1 here? Or was there something kind of different about this fact pattern that might have led it there? I I think they could have easily just done C1 or, as other courts have done, actually skip 230 altogether and jump straight to the First Amendment <laughs> right. uh, because there have been a bunch of cases that you know, where that's happened. I mean, it, it is interesting in that um, there, you know, a lot of 230 cases have actually not been about removals. A lot of the 230 cases have been about content that was left up. Uh, and like defamatory content or something like that, and, and the website would argue that like we don't know, and we don't, we don't, we're not liable for content that we've left up. So it's it's a slightly different case in that this is about content that was taken down or an account that was shut down. There are a few other cases, but a, 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 most of those other cases involving takedowns have have actually been decided on First Amendment grounds, and the courts have skipped over the the two thirty analysis altogether. So. You know, it. I. It's not entirely clear why they didn't just go with C one. I think they could have. I think there are other courts that have. Um, you know, and so I. I think it's interesting. I, I will note that the the appeals court does reference. There is one other sort of famous C two case, um, which was decided in the Ninth Circuit. I, I guess I, I didn't mention this is a Second Circuit case, but um, there was a, a famous Ninth Circuit case involving um, two. Uh, like uh, malware detecting software companies. And one, Malwarebytes, decided that the other one, Enigma Software, that their software, their supposedly you know, antivirus, anti-malware software, was itself malware. Um, and so the company Enigma that, that had its software so deemed sued Malwarebytes and, and said that they were, you know, it was that they couldn't refer to their software as malware. Um, Malwarebytes uh, claimed that it was protected by 230. I, I think that, that that was true, or it should have been true, but the Ninth Circuit decided otherwise, and on C2 grounds said that because it was possible that the decision was on anti-competitive grounds and that they were trying to block a competitor, that that would get around the C2 uh, provision because anti-competitive grounds uh, could suggest not not good faith or bad faith. Um, I, I have problems with that case, but this case, uh, the the Second Circuit here references that decision and says that's a different situation because they're saying that C2 wouldn't be considered good faith in anti-competitive situations, but there's no anti-competitive nature to Vimeo just shutting down this, this guy's account right. for his crazy videos. Um, and so they distinguish it that way. Um, and so those are, you know, that's, that's, you know, these are sort of the two key uh, C2 cases out there now, I guess. So is it the case that whether it's good or bad faith under Section 230 really turns on whether it's a good faith exercise of discretion in that instance, rather than it being some sub pretext or setter, you know, um, kind of sly way of, of kicking somebody off that you just don't like for other reasons that are independent of your own content guidelines? So it's it's not clear. And that's that's part of the problem with it. And, and you know, certainly a lot of people have said that the wording of, of C2, of, of CDA 230, is 
messy, right? Like, it's nice that most of the courts have decided these cases on C1, because C1 is just clear and straightforward. And it, it has this bright line, it says that no, you know, no service provider should be held liable for content created by a third party, period. That's it. You know, there's no sort of test involved. C2 is weird, because it has that good faith phrase in there. And that's why it's it's been Good, I think that most of these cases have been decided on C1 grounds because it's just a clear dividing line. Whereas the C2 cases, you know, this is a, a good ruling and I think it's it's the correct ruling, but the worry is that it will lead to cases that that challenge that point that you're making. That any, you know, people will start to argue that, oh, this this was a pretextual attempt to kick me off the site and I didn't really violate their policies and they're just saying that because they don't like me or they don't like my political views or some other reason. And therefore, just the use of C2 here and the fact that the court, you know, did an analysis of it might lead to a whole bunch of other people trying to to somehow, you know, get around a C1 analysis and fo focus on C2. Is it possible that, you know, the, the reason the court might have chosen to go the C2 route here was it was interested in sending a signal that this is really intended to give um, platforms like Vimeo and, you know, by extension, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, um, a fair amount of discretion and leeway deciding, you know, what can be done on their platforms. Yeah, maybe. I, I mean, and and that's that's like the good reading of this ruling, and and looking at it and saying like, yeah, you know, it says all the right things, and I think will be helpful. And there there are good lines in there to pull in other cases if there are other C two cases that come up, and you can highlight that it does say very clearly that you know. Um, you know, the law does not prescribe specific things that you have to do. It is not creating like, a, you know, a, a, an ABC test that you have to hit each of these points in order to get your C2 protections. It was designed to give very broad protections for the sites to decide for themselves uh, these things. And so I think there are some good elements to the ruling, but just the fact that they had to go through that analysis of whether or not this is good faith leads to the possibility that others will sort of try and, you know, wiggle their way around it. Um, and that's why C2 is just inherently a messier part of the law to rely on than C1. Um, so it's it's a good ruling. I just, I do wonder if others will, um, even though it is good and clear that others will then try and distinguish their cases from this one and say, well, you know, in that case, you know, it, it says that he violated this specific rule and they gave him warnings. You know, does that mean that C2 can't be used in a case where it's not as clear which rule was violated or they don't give you a warning? Because I think that the law is still intended to cover that those, those situations. If a site says you violated our policies, we don't have to tell you which one and you violated them in such an egregious way that we're kicking you off the site right away. Um, I could see someone stepping in and saying, well, that's different than than the Doman case. Um, and therefore, you know, this was done in bad faith. I do have one more, not to monopolize your time here, Anthony, but no. I do have one more quick question, which is, I mean, or, or maybe just comment. I mean, it seems like um, it seems like there's an impression uh, among the general public and in, in like the quote unquote discourse <laughs> about Section 230 that uh, there's some sort of requirement that platforms be like good actors or something. And right. I just don't see that in Section 230. I don't see it as a, you know, you have to be a good guy to get immunity 
um, statute. It just seems more categorical than that. Is that a fair take? Yeah, it 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 is. It, it's it. There is no good guy part. You know, part of the reason why there is that belief is that they do call that the whole section C is referred to as the Good Samaritan clause. Um, so that sort of does imply some some nature of that, but there's nothing in the text of the law that that does require. Um, you know, require you to be a good actor, except for that one part of C2. Um, so if you are relying specifically on that, there is an element that it, that things need to be done in good faith. But, you know, the other two parts of, of C, C1 and then C2B, do not require good faith and, and are designed to be a broad immunity. And then there's just that that question of, you know, whether or not it is possible to necessarily judge whether or not somebody is a good actor, you know, whether or not things are done in good faith opens up an entire can of worms that I think is kind of dangerous. But like the premise of your platform could be actually that, you know, like, say this guy who's the plaintiff opens his own platform, the premise of which is that this is kind of the worldview behind the platform and the, the people he's kicking off his platform have the opposite perspective. Like, it wouldn't that be a good faith exercise of his discretion under 230? Right. Yes. And that's the way most courts have, have you know, interpreted it, which is that the platforms get to set their own rules. And in fact, that's what the, the authors of, of Section 230 have said. That was their intention in writing 230 was to allow many different websites to create their own rules and to create their own communities and to create the policies that match that community. And therefore, you know, you get a variety of different kinds of communities with different rules. And if you wanted to create a community that was focused on, on you know, content that other people disagreed with, well, that's, you know, that's part of what 230 is designed to, to enable. So yes, in theory, you could create a community that is explicitly designed to, to, um, you know, to, to be a, a bad faith actor in some sense, uh, and to encourage things. And there are communities out there that, you know, that have done that. They, they may have trouble surviving for other reasons, such as that there's not a very good business model necessarily in, in sort of, you know, creating a site that is specifically aimed at, at sort of trollish bad behavior. Um, but 230 does allow that. Mike, is, is there any example of any court, state, federal, whatever, ever finding something to be bad faith under under this law? Uh, I mean, the, the malware bites case is is the closest uh, that I can think of. And, and that is they sort of argue that because something is done for anti-competitive reasons, it's not done in good faith. Um, but that's, you know, that's a very fact specific case. Um, and, and I don't think applies to, you know, any other uh, sort of 230 style moderation case. So this uh, I did not prepare for uh, today, so I may be getting this wrong. But a few <laughs> months ago, I think it was a, a dissent from a denial of cert. Uh, Justice Thomas said yeah. he wanted to take a case that had to do with Section two, uh, 230. And he talked about uh, good faith. Is What was the issue he was talking about there, there? And is that something that's likely to come our way? Yeah, it might be. And he was, this was basically the issue. He sort of did want to extend that 
he, he had a few different issues and, and I haven't looked over what he wrote in a, in a couple months. So I don't have it, you know, perfectly in memory, but that was one of the issues that he did want to look at. So his argument would be more aligned with this one. Um, and that was a surprise because it kind of came out of nowhere and there weren't any courts really that had expressed a, you know, a significant interest in doing this. So he stated that, yeah, he thought that more of the moderation decisions should have to show good faith um, in order to get 230 protections. Um, he also argued, and this um, this is, you know, again, this gets really deep in the weeds. Uh, That's what we're but, here for. Cool. Uh, but, you know, he argued um, that 230 had been interpreted much too broadly. Um, and, you know, so before 230, you had sort of, there were a few different liability regimes that you would talk about for sort of, you know, third party content. Um, and so there's publisher liability, right? So if you publish it, you're liable for it. That makes sense. Um, there was then also distributor liability. And this was focused on like uh, cases around like bookstores carrying books, like the, the famous cases there involved, um, you know, whether or not they could be fined for obscene books uh, and, you know, and, and how you judge that. And right. the, the general um, theory or, or doctrine, I guess, around uh, distributor liability was that you were not liable unless you had knowledge of the the violation of of the law. So if you knew that you were stocking obscene books, then you could be held liable for violating you know uh, laws against obscene content. Um, and so the argument was that you had publisher liability and distributor liability. And so one of the things that some people have argued, and, and Clarence Thomas raised this in, in his, uh, in the, 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 the bit that he wrote, um, was that he thought 230 was designed to say that, that websites could not be held uh, on publisher liability claims in which you're fully liable for it, but could still be held liable for distributor liability. I see. So in other words, if they had knowledge, so in that realm, you could say that like if somebody notifies a website that this content is obscene or defamatory or violates some other law, then under distributor liability, if they ignored that notice and did nothing about it, then maybe they could be held liable for that content. All of the cases so far have said, no, 230 wipes out all liability, distributor liability, publisher liability, all of it. And so there is no such thing as distributor liability online today because of 230. Right. And one of the things that Clarence Thomas said was like, I think that's wrong. And I think that distributor liability st should still apply. And that's that's different than what any court has said. And so that issue might come up. Um, and I, I would bet now that there are, there are folks out there trying to set up a case <laughs> for that. Um, I think that's wrong. I think, and, and the authors of 230 have argued that they're, that the, that 230 was meant to, to wipe out both publisher and distributor liability, um, in part because of the nature of the internet, um, uh, enabling distributor liability for things like defamation in particular would create a huge mess online. Um, you know, because then it would be really easy to get any content you want taken down. You just tell the website, this is defamatory, you know, without any 
you know, standard adjudication process to determine whether or not it's defamatory. And, uh, you know, as I'm sure you know, lots of people claim stuff is defamatory when it is absolutely not defamatory. But if you can just say this is defamatory, tell a site, and that site to avoid liability has to pull it down, what are they going to do? They're going to pull it down. And, and indeed, that that was probably impractical in 1996, right. but it's much more impractical <laughs> today with social media, right? Yeah. Than it's just it, some Geo, GeoCities website that someone had in 96. Right, right. And, and you know, there was, uh, there was an interesting analysis um, that we recently republished a few months ago um, that somebody had done in like 1995 and 1996 about whether or not distributor liability would apply on the internet for defamation. And it was for this uh, a treatise on internet law that was published in the 90s that that chapter then got wiped out because Section 230 made it superfluous. Um, and so we were able to get permission to republish that chapter just to look at, you know, the state of the law right before 230 came about. And the general conclusion back then was that like, that would be absolutely crazy, like to, to, <laughs> to assume that distributor liability would apply to the internet in 1995, for like for defamation claims in particular. But if we were to switch it today, I mean, websites would just get flooded with complaints right. of this is defamatory, and you have to take it down, or you're going to get sued, and it would be an absolute mess. So I think, you know, to switch to that world, would completely undermine, you know, uh, 80 to 90% of the, the benefits of 230 in enabling all of these places for speech online. I think it, it would be a disaster. Finally, I, a question I had, and recently I was looking at and, and wrote a bit about uh, some of these state legislatures that are coming up with proposals to, you know, criminalize <laughs> uh, t taking down posts that they Twitter disagreed with, uh, essentially. And I think most of it's just performative. Um, but the I, I saw some commentary about about how 230 interacted with that, but I, I wasn't sure it was quite right. And so I wanted to ask you about the um, 230 sub E, which yeah. is the preemption. And it's pre I think it's pretty straightforward. And most of our listeners get that preemption means a federal law overrides state law. But it, it does it says nothing in this section shall be construed to prevent any state from enforcing any state law that is consistent. Well, that's just consistent with preemption doctrine. It also says no cause of action may be brought and no liability may be imposed under any state or local law that is inconsistent. Well, that's pretty straightforward about, say, a defamation claim. But how does that language apply to a criminal statute? Is, is a criminal statute read to just be liability? is in that language and so it's it's the same process or is it a little different than with civil liability no it's it is actually the same so state criminal sense. state criminal law is preempted by 230 and so um they cannot enforce and this this upsets state attorneys general to, to no end they, they they absolutely hate this and you know you can go back a decade and you can find you know every couple of years like 48 out of the 50 state attorney generals send a letter to Congress saying like, get rid of this preemption for state criminal law. But yeah, it preempts state criminal law. So so the state cannot go after platforms for their for their moderation choices as well. Um, federal criminal law is not right, uh, right, is not exempted from the law. So the you know, the Justice <laughs> Department um, can and, and sometimes does go after websites for 
for uh, violating federal criminal law, but but both state civil and criminal law is preempted. And so the various state laws that are now trying to sort of get around 230 are all not going to work. I mean, beyond mostly being unconstitutional. Well, and yeah, they already violate the First Amendment was my right. opinion, but they yes. also have this problem. Yes, yeah. And, and so, um, you know, and, and we'll see what happens. I don't know if any of those state laws, Utah recently passed one, but the, the, uh, the governor just uh, vetoed it. So that one is not going into effect. Um, and, you know, but there are a bunch of laws. I, I, but yeah, I think they're all unconstitutional and they're preempted by 230. And you would think that, you know, it would be nice if, if state legislatures paid attention to those things, but they, they don't seem to care very much. Well, let's move now from virtual technology to technology you can touch. Uh, well, at least technology that you can see flying above your house. Now, coincidentally, this week, we at IJ filed a new case about drones, where an entrepreneur, Michael Jones of North Carolina, is using drones to photograph his various clients' land with their consent, of course, to help them map their properties. Uh, the engineering board of North Carolina is giving him a hard time. So we've filed a First Amendment lawsuit on his behalf that you can read all about at IJ.org. And we'll put a link to a, uh, up to it in the show notes. But what if the government took photos of your property without your consent from a drone? Well, the Michigan Court of Appeals addressed that last week in Long Lake Township versus Maxson. Josh, who won, the property owners or the drone? <laughs> um, well, in this case, it was the property owners, um, although the drone wasn't a, wasn't a party to the case. <laughs> oh, okay. It didn't intervene? No, no, no. It was, a, it, was a, it was a town. So this case is really fascinating. It arises out of um, a zoning dispute, um, as you alluded to earlier. And just to give a little, give a little bit of backstory about how this case arose, um, in about 2008, uh, there was a town in Michigan that um, I guess apparently had been receiving complaints about a property owner, um, Maxon, who was um, operating an illegal junkyard on their property. I guess the zoning ordinance doesn't allow that. And um, after discussions with the property owner and filing a complaint against them, um, the parties ultimately settled that dispute. And it seems like the property owner agreed. It's not quite clear from the opinion, but it seems like the property owner agreed to um, comply with certain parameters um, in exchange for the city dismissing the case. Um, so over the next decade, the city uh, surreptitiously monitored um, the property owner to ensure they were complying with the parameters of the agreement. And the way they did this was by working with a third party um, drone operator to fly above the property and take pictures of it to see whether you know certain amounts of junk were being stored on the property in excess of what um, the parties had agreed to. And in 2018, after taking um, photos over the course of uh, several years, um, the city ultimately filed a civil case against the property owner and said, look, um, you're violating the zoning ordinance. We need to stop you from doing that. And so the, the first thing the owner did was say, OK, well, I don't remember giving you consent to come on my property and I'm not aware of any warrant you might have had. So I'm going to move to suppress um, the pictures that you've attached to your complaint. Um, and for those unfamiliar, this is a common kind of tool for vindicating your Fourth Amendment rights. It's kind of the primary tool. If the government um, enters or searches your property without a warrant, 
um, the way that you vindicate that right is to say, I want the evidence you collected from the illegal entry, from the illegal search or seizure to be suppressed. It can't be used against me in court. So that's what's going on here. Now, the trial court um, ruled for the city and said, uh, you know, we're going to deny the suppression motion. And the reason we're going to do that is a case called Riley from the U.S. Supreme Court um, in the 80s. And for a little bit of background on Riley, this is actually it's a hotly contested decision. It was 5-4. But um, what happened in that case was that you had a property owner uh, in Florida. I think they had about five acres of land and they had some greenhouses out back where they were growing marijuana. And so the police had gotten a tip about these, these, these kind of weed houses and they thought, OK, we need to go investigate. But the problem was the officer couldn't see the greenhouses from the street. So he got in a helicopter and uh, the opinion says circled the property um, until he found an opening in the greenhouses where he could see the weed, used that information to get a search warrant and then went to go search the property. Just like any normal citizen would do with their own <laughs> helicopter. <laughs> exactly. So in that case, the U.S. Supreme Court said um, the, it was not a search because the marijuana was visible from the sky. And the officer had viewed it from a place where they had a legal right to be. In other words, you're allowed to fly over property as long as you're a certain um, height above the property. In that case, it was 400 feet. And so it was analogous to, you know, if I walk by Anthony's house from the street and I, and I just happened to look through his window and see him watching, you know, um, the office, right? Um, I, I, I haven't looked at anything that I don't have a right to see. And so therefore I haven't like searched his property. He has willingly exposed that information, um, to my site. And so the court kind of took that logic and said, okay, um, in the Riley case, uh, the officer didn't search the greenhouses for the weed. All right. So the trial court says in, in the, um, in the Michigan drone case, uh, that logic definitely controls here because in this situation, the drone um, operator had a legal right to fly the drone where he was flying it. And, uh, you know, the, it was just taking pictures of things that anybody above the property could have seen, you know, drunk on the yard, uh, junk on the yard and stuff like that. Um, the Court of Appeals reverses that decision. And there's a lot to unpack here. So I, I want to give Anthony some discretion over how we choose to do that. But I'll tell you just briefly what happened. So the Court of Appeals says, okay, Riley's, you know, it's a big part of this discussion, but we don't think it controls. We actually think this case is kind of governed by the principles of two other cases, Kylo and Carpenter. And uh, mostly the case that, that kind of we should talk about is Kylo, because in that case, uh, Justice Scalia holds that the use of a um, thermal heat uh, radiation sensor to look into somebody's house and, and detect the radiation levels, that is a search um, under the Fourth Amendment because it's, it's you know, peering into someone's most protected place, their home, in a way that wouldn't have been conceivable at the founding. Um, so you're using a technology to invade somebody's private space, their private property. And so the court says, look, um, surely if the use of that kind of innovative technology in Kylo was a search, um, that's closer to kind of the use of drones uh, as a kind of innovative new technology to, you know, peer onto this guy's private property. And it's worth noting that the, the images taken um, couldn't have been captured by somebody like just walking by on the street. Apparently, you know, trees 
blocked anybody's view of of the places the pictures were taken of. So it's 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 clear that this was a private space that you only could have viewed from the sky. And I think the courts what's key to the opinion is the court's um, reliance on this reasonable expectation of privacy tests for what what constitutes a search. And this is a test that goes back to a case called Katz um, from the 60s. But the essence of it is that um, the government's only searched you or your property um, if um, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in it and being free from that search. And so the court says here, okay, even though, you know, a plane flying over could have seen the junk on the on the property, um, nobody thinks that the plane flying over is um, actually a drone that's taking high res photos of your property and flying around, you know, being remote controlled by somebody. And well, part isn't of the, it key the drone is lo- was lower? Everyone agreed it was definitely lower than what like a plane can be at. Well, this is fascinating because it it was lower than I mean, the court keyed to a number of factors that this is the reason I mentioned the Carpenter case. And we don't have to go into Carpenter. But the essence of that from 2018 is that when the government's using like fancy new technologies that are super cheap and give them massive surveillance capabilities, that can violate this reasonable ex- expectation of privacy test. And it seems like the court really heavily relied on that and said there are lots of things about drones that are just qualitatively different than planes. So they're super cheap. Um, your ability to control them when they're going through your property is is um, pr- you have a lot of mastery over that where they go. Um, they're hard to detect. Um, they can gather information uh, sort of 24 seven if you want to just fly them around and they have a lot of, you know, um, charge. Right. So you don't have to, I mean, there's really a lot you can do with drones. And um, so, yeah, so this was to the court just far more intrusive than a plane happening to fly over your property. It's basically just like an invasion of your property by, um, you know, without without feet. Right. <laughs> but isn't, isn't one of the things that was interesting, though, is because they rely on the Kylo case, too. But in the Kylo case, part of the reasoning was that. Um, you know, the technology for the infrared scanning was not readily available to the public. And yet for this case, you're talking about drones, which are readily available to the public. And in fact, the reason they they pull in Carpenter is because it is this sort of, you know, new cool technology that is that is all over the place. So I, I was a little confused about how they could rely on both Kylo and Carpenter when in, in some ways they sort of disagree over the, the sort of uh, availability of the technology. Well, I mean, I have to be honest with you. I think the dissent, I'm not sure they have the better of this argument in terms of the ultimate result of the case, but the dissent was very compelling. Um, because yeah. from, the dis- from the dissent's perspective, um, you're not talking about the situation in Kylo where, um, where it's actually in somebody's home, and so it's concealed from just plain view. Um, you're talking about a situation where if somebody has a legal right to be in the place and they're looking at it, it would be visible. That is the junk. And so I think here the crucial question is really, you know, did the city have the right to have their drone where it was when it took the photos? Um, and that's a that's a question. It doesn't seem like the court really address. And there's a lot we can, this is how, why I said earlier, Anthony, there's a lot to unpack here because this is really a sticking point for me um, that the court super glosses over. Um, but just to get back to, to Michael's point really quickly about, um, about Carpenter, it just seems like the court kind of relied on Carpenter to say, 
this just seems wrong. This just seems intrusive. And so regardless of Riley, which I think seems like it should probably control here, um, just as on, on a plain reading of Riley, uh, you know, it feels too intrusive. And so we have to say no. Yeah, Josh, uh, you're absolutely right that we could go on and on about this case. There's so much to, to unpack, but to, to unpack something that that you and I, I know are especially interested in, um, the court doesn't do an analysis on a property rights view that the of the Fourth Amendment, like in recent cases uh, uh, like Jones and Jardines, where the court says, you know, we have the reasonable expectation of privacy, but there's also it's ne- never gone away is this other property rights view of the Fourth Amendment. And you can win under either theory. And so in, in this case, they go with the with the the, the reasonable expectation of, of, of privacy uh, analysis. But there's kind of in the background, there is a little bit of property rights because, you know, it's a little unclear where I mean, it seems like the drone was legally where it was at. But it's definitely lower than what the FAA says uh, a helicopter or a plane can go, which I, I think is 400 feet. Um, but circling around in there is like we don't really know. And I and I know some of this because uh, I actually found out about this case on Twitter from uh, Greg McNeil at Pepperdine, who's a, a professor who studies drones. And I saw him give a fascinating talk a few years ago about, about this issue. We don't really know how high above your house you own the air. That's never really been sorted out. Under, under uh, as Richard Epstein would say, under Roman law, you owed all the way to the heavens. And, and that was true under you know Blackstone or whenever this was relevant. But when airplanes came along and you said, well, of course you don't, you can't own like miles and miles up and airplanes have to be able to fly over your house. So like there's a certain point above your house where drones can't go, right? That's your airspace. But then it seems like above that there there is so it's a little murky where the drone can go, and yet there's there's so, there's an argument there that if the drone went low enough, maybe not even legally where where you want, which again is not defined. It's a little bit like the the cops bringing a drug dog in the Jardines case, where they said that, so in Jardines the, the this case from a few years ago that the Supreme Court said. The police can come up to your front door just like anyone else and knock. Uh, that's not a search. And then if you don't answer the door after a couple minutes, you're expected to leave. That's just part of um, a uh, implied easement of having a house unless you have a uh, no trespassing sign. But you can't bring up a drug dock because that's not part of the implied easement. Yeah. I think most people would say there is no implied easement for a drone to float over your house and take photographs. Well, this is... So you're keying on what I think is the most interesting part of the opinion and the part that I think the court treats with the most gloss. So <laughs> what the what the court does, um, it says, I'm just just to quote here, it says, we think there's little meaningful distinction for present purposes between, quote, just inside the property line and, quote, just outside the property line um, in terms of where the drone is. I think that's totally wrong. I mean, the court the court <laughs> quotes Jones just before that, or at least cites Jones and says, yeah, a physical trespass of a property can constitute a search. And so for me, it's like, well, that seems like a dispositive question that you can just decide based on state law. And like, you're the Michigan Court of Appeals. Why can't you figure this out? Now, the reason I think they decided not to answer it um, is the footnote they drop. Uh, have you seen footnote six, Anthony? Remind me. Okay, footnote six um, says, 
Well, let, let's let's read the sentence that that has a footnote and then the footnote itself. So it says, although a physical trespass by a governmental entity may constitute a violation of the Fourth Amendment, a trespass into an open field might not implicate the Fourth Amendment. And then the, yes, the, the, the sixth footnote, you know, the sixth footnote says, um, we observe, however, that defendant's property can hardly be described as an open field by any lay understanding of the term. Most of it is not visible from the ground. I mean, this is dodging, right? It's it's <laughs> the question that I think really matters here is if you if you happen to own a certain amount of airspace above your house, and I think you do, the court even acknowledges that the question is, how much do you own? And then is that part of the curtilage? Or is that part of the open field? Yes. Because if, if it's open field, there's no Fourth Amendment at all. And it would be weird if airspace was more protected than like a <laughs> lawn. Well, it, I think it really it really um, dr- drives home how silly the phrase open fields is <laughs> and the doctrine is because the the court, you know, Supreme Court has said over and over, it doesn't even have to be open. It doesn't even have to be a field. Right. So it's really any property other than the home and its curtilage. And so the question is really just do you own it or not? Well, uh, whatever you own, uh, issues like this are going to keep coming up and uh, we will stand ready to talk about them. And we would love to sometime again uh, have uh, Mike Masnick on to uh, to discuss the latest in technology. And of course, our friend Josh Windham when he's not out litigating Fourth Amendment cases. So thanks to both of our guests for coming on and to all of you. Uh, whatever kind of new technology you're using, we ask that you get engaged.